Welcome to Click, Treat, Repeat. This is a horse-focused podcast discussing positive reinforcement training, equine management and welfare, and other horse-related topics. So let's get started. I guess another thing that we should probably acknowledge is their big use of environmental factors in like setting up the situation to encourage those high movement behaviors, which I think is something that a lot of positive reinforcement trainers who don't use intrinsic could learn from because I think a lot of training is about setting up the environment to encourage the horse to be successful. And I think intrinsic does a pretty good job of setting up the environment in ways that are going to encourage that high energy behavior. Like, I don't know if I'm going to get this example exactly right, but I know that there was kind of one story that Kathy tells where her horse was pretty low energy, but there were like specific situations in which he would be high energy. In the example, you know, she would open the gate and the horse would run through the gate. So she started using the gate as the training situation to kind of capture that high energy behavior since that was where he was already naturally offering the high energy behavior. So I think things like that, you know, we can kind of learn a lot from in general, no matter what type of training method you use. Yeah, that's a really good example. In the Willing Equines Foundation course, she talked about, it was like very brief, but she talked about like using the shaking of a pan kind of as a lure to get the horse to trot or canter and then marking and rewarding that. That's a different situation, but a really similar idea to try to get those high energy behaviors. Yeah, that's really interesting. And then another example that that reminds me of is people who want to teach their horse to roll. A lot of the time, I mean, the way you can set that up is to take your horse to a place where they're just naturally going to want to roll, like a sand arena or kind of like a wet, muddy spot, something like that, where the horse is naturally going to want to roll. And then you can sort of capture that. So, you know, using the environment for situations that you want to capture definitely is a good method here. And it's something that I think a lot of positive reinforcement trainers can really use. And I think that, you know, with Kathy's kind of like gate example, if I even recalled it properly, um, it, I think it is sort of showing how they're trying to capture the intrinsic motivation. Like Kathy will only sort of reward high effort behaviors. So instead of with shaping being kind of, you know, we're looking for a specific end behavior. Like if we want the horse to lift their foot, we might, you know, click and reinforce for a tiny weight shift and then a slightly bigger weight shift. And then the hoof gets slightly off the ground and then the hoof gets more off the ground. And then we're, you know, increasing the duration of holding the hoof off the ground, things like that. So we're sort of going for a specific behavior there, whereas they're just going for high effort. So, you know, it's not like, oh, we want the horse to rear well it might be that but like in general it's sort of just with intrins and you just want them to do something that they're showing high effort and high energy so I think that's really interesting but I also have some concerns about it I don't know yeah that's one thing that is kind of complicated for me because a lot of what she was talking about in the podcast episodes I listened to was like intentionally making the horse angry or frustrated to get those behaviors like one example she had, it's not an exact quote because I took these notes forever ago and I don't remember what she actually <laughs> said, but at one point she was talking about making the horse angry and then 
rewarding with a click and treat for them performing those aggressive or stress-based behaviors or whatever. And this was with, I think his name was Dramer, one of her horses that I think she said was pretty low energy. Again, I took my notes forever ago, so <laughs> I'm having a hard time remembering, but I'm pretty sure it was one of the horses that was like really shut down and didn't really perform a lot of behaviors at all. She said she was having a hard time even getting him to walk or anything like that through training. He would do it naturally, I think, but yeah, she talked about making him angry or frustrated basically. And then rewarding it with a click and treat, like I said, which is confusing because she said she doesn't use extrinsic extrinsic motivators, but then she also uses a clicker and rewards the horse. And it's all just really confusing. I know other people probably do actually incorporate positive reinforcement into the intrinsic-based work, but with Kathy specifically, a lot of what she said was really confusing to me. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, and I would agree. I think also it brings up the question of, can you even reinforce actual, you know, anger or frustration or whatever that's causing those high energy behaviors? I mean, you can certainly reinforce, say, like, an angry looking facial expression in the sense of, like, you're reinforcing them for having their ears back and their nostrils flared and their, you know, jaw tense or whatever, and so that's kind of creating a stressed looking um, face that you're reinforcing, but I know that one of the things that is generally believed, I haven't seen science on it, but I, I you know, think it's generally taken to be true is that you can't reinforce fear. And so that kind of leads me to wonder if you even can reinforce those things or if it's just reinforcing you know, the, the behavior itself, which in, you know, in that case, if you're just reinforcing a behavior and you're not reinforcing the kind of mental process that of like, you know, high energy or high effort, if you're not actually reinforcing that mental process, then I don't think it's doing what they're saying it's doing. Yeah, I agree with that. And it's tricky too, because what I think is actually happening is just a conflict surrounding the food or whatever reward they're getting, rather than them actually being reinforced specifically for the behavior or emotion they're feeling. Yeah, I agree. And I think Another issue, I mean, we've talked about specifically in the past, but I think, you know, with the overjustification effect, which is in humans, the idea that if you add an extrinsic motivator, it will decrease the intrinsic motivator. It, that sort of makes it hard for me to understand how they can use extrinsic motivators to increase the intrinsic motivation when, you know, the whole issue that they actually have with positive reinforcement is that it results in this overjustification effect because of, you know, decreasing the intrinsic motivation. I just sort of fail to see how they can then want to use, you know, extrinsic motivation to kind of affect the intrinsic motivation and not think that the same thing is going to happen with the overjustification effect. Yeah, that's where it's really confusing for me, honestly. It's just there is an aspect of reward, at least in Kathy's work, or negative reinforcement intentionally or not, it's there. So to think that the horse is only doing things intrinsically just doesn't really make sense to me. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I mean, that's part of what's very hard to really evaluate intrinsic as, you know, whether we think it's a good method or not as good method or whatever is because it's actually really hard to pin down exactly what it is because it's a bit confusing in the way that its proponents 
describe it. And also there is so much variation between the way that its proponents practice. And so it's very hard to kind of understand what exactly it is. And that may just be, you know, sort of our lack of understanding because we haven't taken this course that Kathy offers. We haven't, you know, actually done it. But I mean, we definitely researched and prepared and regularly see this content. So, I mean, we're not, you know, completely clueless, but I think, you know, maybe we could pin it down better if we sort of got more of the information from the source, like from the course and stuff like that. But it's, I think it is just sort of confusing as a principle as well. Yeah, I agree. And I don't know, the idea of her still using a clicker is just what really gets me because for that clicker to actually work and mark behaviors, something has to be reinforced in that situation. The clicker has to be charged in some way, so to speak. So even if she isn't using rewards after the click, she's still clicking. And there are studies, of course, I don't have them as usual, but <laughs> there's studies, I think, with dogs where they tested a clicker with a reinforcer and a clicker that was charged, but they didn't give reinforcement after that. And they still both worked and pretty equally effectively, but with the lack of a reinforcer, the clicker just, it can kind of weaken, I guess is the best way to put it, but it still works and reinforces the behavior because it's been charged. Yeah, I agree. And I think a lot of it comes down to, again, their idea of wanting to reinforce like a mindset instead of like a specific behavior. But I think that that's kind of tough to do. And um, we're kind of always reinforcing behavior. And we don't really know exactly what the mindset of the horse is. We, I mean, we can say that we're reinforcing, say, high effort. But how does high effort actually differ from just like stress or fear or whatever, which we can't reinforce fear. So I think it's just kind of hard to really say what exactly we're doing. So I think another kind of like vaguely related concept that I would like to talk about is I think in a, kind of an idea or a game that some people use that in some ways kind of reminds me of intrinsic is the kind of like 101 things to do with a cone or you know various other objects type of game and I've seen it from Mosey Truitt and I've seen it from other people as well and it's essentially where you reinforce the horse for offering like a new behavior such as like you know first they bite the cone and then they touch the cone with their nose and then they knock the cone over and then they pick the cone back up and then they flip the cone over and then they throw the cone or like just random you know whatever behaviors and the goal is to get as many behaviors as possible and I have tried this game and I have also seen it tried via portal on humans without them knowing you know what was going on sort of just like the, the learner was in the dark and the trainer was like okay we're gonna do this game and the learner didn't know what the game was and um, it's the reason why it reminds me of it is because I think both of them are kind of trying to reinforce like more of an internal process than an actual physical behavior, um, like in the sense of intrinsic trying to reinforce high, high effort, high energy in general, though not trying to necessarily reinforce like any specific action. And then, you know, the 101 things to do with the cone game, trying to reinforce sort of like the creative process of like offering new behaviors um, rather than kind of offering, you know, one behavior that's getting shaped closer and closer to a goal behavior. So 
I definitely see a lot of overlap there. I was wondering, like, do you also see that overlap or not? Yeah, definitely. I think that's done a lot with positive reinforcement in a free shaping kind of session. And also I've seen a lot in, in Trinzen. And that's something I actually try to do with my playdate clients at work, but because people are kind of not very creative, <laughs> they tend <laughs> to just ask the dog to go on things. So I'll bring out like the fit pause fitness bone or like those discs you're supposed to balance on, wobble boards, things like that. And the person's goal is always just to get the puppy on the thing. <laughs> but <laughs> I always tell them to reward them for looking at it, for sniffing it, for putting a back foot on there, like anything they offer to give them a treat for it. Again, they usually just try to get the dog on the thing, but <laughs> that's a similar concept that I incorporate into my work with dogs. And I think it can be really helpful to kind of help them with their creativity, I guess, and being individual rather than always relying on cues. And yeah, I think that's a really good exercise, but I think if you are just starting out with that, there can inherently be a little bit of stress as they're waiting for you to tell them to do something. Mm -hmm. No, I completely agree. And I think that, you know, the way that you're describing it is actually like a really good way of doing it. Whereas like in general, when I've seen the 101 things to do with the cone game done, including as when I've done it, I have not seen very good results from it. I've seen a lot of stress and, um, you know, especially in the sense that the, I think one of the ideas of the game is that, you know, you're not supposed to keep repeatedly reinforcing them for doing the same thing. They're supposed to be doing different things. And I think that can get really confusing for the animals when we're kind of usually wanting them to essentially repeat a behavior, you know, maybe with very, very small modifications to it as we're shaping it towards the goal behavior but you know if we click them for touching something we're then expecting them to touch it again I mean that's the whole point we're reinforcing it to increase that behavior so I think it can be kind of tough if we're doing the game in a way where you know we reinforce them for touching the cone then the next time they touch the cone we don't reinforce them and then they are like what the heck's going on then they try kicking the cone and we're like we reinforce that and they're like oh okay so now I kick the cone then I kick it again and we don't reinforce them they're like oh I don't understand this game like what is going on and so I think you know that can be pretty stressful for them but in the sense of like just going ahead and reinforcing them for like any interaction with the object especially if you're kind of bringing out new or novel objects that can definitely help them to kind of like develop a creative or um curious I guess, mindset towards new objects, especially since a lot of studies show that horses are naturally fearful of new objects. Um, so like doing things like that can definitely help. I would just really kind of caution against playing that game in a way that you're going to confuse them or stress them out by not, you know, reinforcing things that you've previously reinforced. I think that can be tough. And that's also what I saw when it was played in Portal, which Portal is sort of the human training game developed by Mary Hunter, where you, um, essentially just have a human as your learner and you teach them to kind of manipulate little figurines and objects and you know whatever goal behavior you're looking for so basically that you know they did that that game on actually my trainer Rachel and she was like what the heck is going on because she kept like you know repeating the behaviors that she had been reinforced for and she wasn't getting reinforcement so she was starting to get frustrated and, you know, as a human, it's a lot less difficult, I think, for us to get frustrated by, you know, like a sort of board game task than it is for the horses to get frustrated by like a food situation where they're expecting a food reinforcer. 
and then they don't get it and stuff like that. So that's kind of like what my opinion on that game is. Like, I'm not a huge fan of the game, but I think like, you know, you said if you're doing it in a way where you're just sort of like reinforcing them for any interaction with an object, like especially an object that they might be uncertain of or have never seen before, I think that is like more of a positive thing. Yeah, because of the risk of extinction behaviors and frustration, I think it might be a good idea to maybe not do it with cones or yeah. <laughs> targets, things that they would be using in a training setting. Like maybe if they have a jolly ball in their pasture, they can do whatever they want with that. That's fine. Like it doesn't affect any of your training really, unless you're teaching fetch. But I don't yeah. think most people are doing that. <laughs> it's a cool behavior, but I don't see it, it done is very cool. much. <laughs> I think that makes sense, like kind of doing it with a new object or maybe even having like a specific area where you do sort of, you know, that activity as opposed to where you do normal shaping, because I mean, they like if they're a clicker savvy horse, especially and they know what the process of shaping is. And then, you know, you're suddenly doing something that's not really shaping, but still uses the same tools like the clicker and the food reinforcement and whatnot, they may be confused. So you know, I think using the environmental context to at least like let them know, hey, that we're doing a different type of activity or something also could be helpful. Yeah, that's a really good idea. And I mean, the same thing is true for if you still use negative reinforcement, you're going to want to separate where they're getting what kind of training, or maybe they wear different equipment. Like you have to do something with the context to make it very clear what's happening. Yeah, I agree. And I, I mean, we probably don't want to get into this topic in this episode because it's already very broad but that just really brings up mixing and (laughs) I have so many thoughts on mixing and I am not a fan of mixing in general I think it depends on like what your goal is but if you plan to use any real type of free shaping or offering behavior or anything like that I would really 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 caution against mixing unless you're very clear about what situation is the free shaping situation and what situation there's going to be negative reinforcement involved and in a free shaping situation I would not use any pressure any negative reinforcement because I think you know if you're expecting them to offer behavior but it's possible that they're going to have some type of pressure applied to them you know if they're not sort of doing the the behavior in the way that you want then I think that that's really going to make it tough for them to offer behavior effectively and to feel secure in that situation. So, I mean, they may not offer behavior or they may offer behavior, but be stressed about it because they don't really know if, you know, a treat's going to come or if there's going to be pressure or punishment coming or, you know, those type of things. So I think it's just like, it's honestly, I'd rather see somebody using a very consistent, um, non-escalating negative reinforcement than I would like to see them using mixing because I think it's just so hard to use mixing properly and you know like like you just said if we can really separate the environment and really distinguish between what we're doing in those cases it might be fine but I think you have to really be skilled to separate it effectively and you know obviously we can't just like go to 100% positive reinforcement the first time we ever learn about positive reinforcement so I get that sometimes mixing is necessary when you're in the process of switching over or um you know if there are just certain behaviors that have been very strongly taught with negative reinforcement in the past like leading or maybe like picking up their hooves you put slight pressure on their leg and they pick it up to get picked out stuff like that I think you know maintaining some of those behaviors is different than like continually 
teaching things using negative reinforcement in sort of a similar context to where you're using positive reinforcement. Like I think maintaining a behavior that has been taught with negative reinforcement is, you know, gonna have a little bit less of those issues, especially when you don't have to use escalating pressure because it's pretty well taught and you can sort of just maintain it at a low level for an extended period while you're working on switching over to positive reinforcement. I mean, I know like, I guess the, the summary is that I know it's tough to just totally switch over, but I think mixing can just have a lot of negative impacts. So I would just be careful of it. And maybe we'll make a longer episode on mixing because there's just so much more to say, but I feel like it is relevant here because of entrance in kind of including mixing in some situations as well. Yeah, I feel really similarly. Like I will talk about it with people because a lot of people are just getting into positive reinforcement and maybe don't feel comfortable dropping all traditional training or maybe they're unable to if they don't own the horse but I agree that it can be more confusing for the horse and really complicated for the person handling the horse as well but yeah that could be an entire episode on its own (laughs) (laughs) yeah it really could I mean yeah definitely could like I kind of I kind of illustrated this to my boyfriend by like explaining to him in portal like he doesn't really play portal with me because he doesn't like it but just, you know, trying to get him to offer behaviors. And then, you know, he offers the wrong behavior and he's, you know, in the middle of him offering the behavior, I like push his hand away from the object. And he's like, whoa, I was like offering a behavior. That's not cool. Like, I don't understand. Like, do you want me to offer behavior or are you going to like push my hand away from the object or whatever? I think like the horses can kind of have that experience too of like, they're, they're not quite sure, like what, you're doing here they don't know if they're supposed to be offering something or if they're just supposed to be standing still and waiting for you know some type of traditional cue to be coming or what so you know I think it's just it can be tough but if done well like if you're a professional and you really know what you're doing I think it can be done well it's just really tough when you're don't necessarily know exactly what you're doing and yeah I think that's just hard because so many of us are crossover people and so many of our horses are crossover horses so there's just kind of like an inherent mixing involved there and I think that is the whole issue but we can't really do anything about it because that's just the situation so yeah it's really unfortunate that the horse world is so far behind and so heavy on traditional training still but I mean, with Pharaoh, I wanted to get a young horse, like a foal, because I was hoping I could train them from the ground up with positive reinforcement. And even with him, he came with some baggage, so to speak. And he was like, just halter broke. So, I mean, there's just a lot that goes into it. And it can be really confusing for the horse when you're mixing. Yeah, I completely agree. And on a sort of random note, but I just think it's kind of funny. There's um, a couple foals, or they're not really foals anymore. They're just sort of young horses that I know that were raised using fully or at least very strongly, primarily positive reinforcement. And they're just so silly. Like it's so adorable to see how they grow up. Like one of them, um, I actually don't know his full history, but he's pretty young and he's been, he's had positive reinforcement used on him for a very long time. And I think not too much negative reinforcement, if any. And he like one of his biggest training issues is that he will stand on the mounting block so that like the rider can't mount because he's like oh platform and he'll just like go to it and stand <laughs> and I just think that's so cute like if you have to have a training problem that's a good one to have because it's just adorable <laughs> yeah it's so nice when yeah feel comfortable offering things like that 
Yes, and his owner is really working with him on having him not stand on the mounting block, and they're doing great, and they're making a lot of progress there, which is wonderful, but it's like, I'd much rather see that than like a real shut down horse who doesn't want to do anything. It's like, he's just having fun and offering behaviors. That's cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) I think another kind of back to intrinsic, an element of intrinsic (laughs) that is important to acknowledge is that it's not meant to be used with every horse and every person. So, I mean, like one thing that Kathy says is that if you and your horse are already happy and thriving, you don't need intrinsic. So it's kind of like one of those things that is designed for horses who really kind of need that help getting higher movement. Horses that already are doing great and kind of aren't really having issues. I think they're not really the ones that intrinsic is designed for. And so I think that's also kind of an interesting element of it because, I mean, one of the big things about positive reinforcement is that it's like, oh, it can be used on any horse by pretty much any person that knows what they're doing and can be pretty much used with any animal that can learn. So it's very broad and pretty much intended for any situation. And on the other hand, intrinsic is kind of more of like a limited thing that is only for some horses. And I think it's probably true that, you know, it probably works better for some horses than others like some horses might be stressed by it other horses might not be stressed by it so I mean I think that's kind of an interesting thing that they kind of point out it's interesting that you had that quote from her because I have a different one where she sounded a little more snarky about positive (laughs) reinforcement maybe it was from a different episode of a podcast or something I don't know but she basically had a little talk about doing what works for your horse and then after that she said some of what they're doing may not be a good idea, but it's not that it can't work. A lot of the times, obviously, for a lot of people, it does, although very slowly compared to if you just let the horse learn how to do it themselves. Mm, and, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like the opposite of what you just said. <laughs> so that's, yeah. yeah, I think that comes with her idea of thinking that positive reinforcement creates robots and horses that don't think for themselves, but that's just not true. Like (laughs) I can say with my own horses that they're so much more creative and open now that I do use positive reinforcement and they both to some extent are crossover horses. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, just go back to my story of the horse standing on the mounting block. Like how is that a robot? (laughs) That is not the desired behavior and it is not something that has you know, ever been reinforced with that object. I mean, he's been reinforced for standing on other platforms. So in a way it has been reinforced, but I mean, he's, he's definitely doing what he wants and offering his own behaviors. He's not just like standing there, shut down, um, following whatever cue is given. So, I mean, I think positive reinforcement can potentially result in horses that are maybe robots. I don't know. I've never seen this happen, but I can sort of see how it maybe could happen in a very 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 small number of cases if they are you know possibly if they're mixing I think mixing could create a horse that's sort of shut down and sort of just does whatever is clearly cued and doesn't really offer anything and I think it also could happen in a horse maybe that's getting way too high value of a reinforcer and doesn't feel that they have any autonomy to offer behaviors or do anything other than exactly what they you know think they have to do to get the reinforcer just because it's so high value that they they feel you know kind of limited by that so I guess I can see how it could happen but I think 
you know, of the problems with positive reinforcement, I don't think creating robots is really one of the, the big ones that anybody should be concerned about. No, I think you'd have to do a really bad job. <laughs> yeah. <up> with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, compared to like traditional or, you know, even non-traditional negative reinforcement, like, you know, I guess I'm thinking of pretty gentle, non-escalating negative reinforcement. Even that is way more likely to create a robot because they're not really offering behavior there. They're just responding to low levels of pressure. So, I mean, that's pretty much what would be a robot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I don't think that using positive reinforcement is a slower process than intrinsic either, because if you just look at the studies, it, it proves that positive reinforcement is the most effective. Yeah, that's so true. And I think another kind of um, point that this discussion can bring up is that another criticism of intrinsic is that it creates a very unpredictable force sometimes because you are kind of um, reinforcing for this high energy and this high movement. I mean, that can create an unpredictable force. I've heard proponents of intrinsic, you know, happily admit that that's true because that's okay with them, you know, but if you're using your horse say for well using your horse is not a good phrase but you know it's still in my vocabulary from traditional days but say you know you're doing like work with kids with your horse and you don't necessarily want an unpredictable horse it's not about wanting a shut down horse or a horse that is not going to express themselves at all but maybe you don't want a horse that's gonna like just rear or whatever um or you know, take off running or, you know, any of those high energy behaviors because it's been reinforced or because that's, you know, their expectation in the training process. And so I think um, that is an issue as well, is that you don't really want to have an unpredictable horse and they don't, they don't use stimulus control very much in intrinsic because it's obviously about the horse expressing themselves. It's not about doing a behavior on cue. Um, it's about them just doing the behavior when it feels good to them. So you know, it can result in things like that, which can be a problem. I mean, they can be unsafe or they can be an issue if anybody has to handle the horse other than you, who isn't really knowledgeable or prepared for, you know, what that horse might express. And so I think, you know, that's, that's not me saying horses shouldn't express themselves. That's just me saying, you know, maybe we don't want to encourage some of these super high energy behaviors with, with, you know, extrinsic reinforcement, because then they might be showing up in situations where we don't really want to see them because we're, you know, increasing the likelihood of that behavior. I definitely think safety is the biggest issue with all of that kind of stuff. And like seeing a horse rear or just like show off how strong they are in general is really cool. Like they're very powerful animals, but when it's a safety risk for them or anyone involved, I don't think it's worth it. Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the big positives of positive reinforcement is that it is so safe because you can do it in protected contact. You can do it behind a fence. You can do it, you know, in ways that are being very attentive to the horse's body language and facial expression and making sure not to do anything that is going to really, you know, be too much for them and um, cause them to experience high stress that could result in some type of conflict behaviors or any type of sort of dangerous behavior because they're going over threshold. I mean, I think that's one of the big benefits of positive reinforcement. And that's one of the things that I love most about it is that it's able to kind of keep 
um, the, the training process in this very calm and relaxed state most of the time. And obviously, if you do it wrong or you have too high value reinforcers or whatever, um, you can definitely create stress and frustration. But if done right, I think it really, really limits the stress and frustration there. And when that does come up, the trainers can recognize it and can kind of take a break or do something else to kind of limit that situation from happening. And that also reminds me about a study that I was looking at that was talking about how they asked online equestrians, well, just equestrians, but they contacted them via online and asked them to kind of look at videos of a horse and to identify what, you know, what that horse was communicating via facial expression and body language and no discipline of trainers had a you know significant likelihood of identifying the correct answer other than clicker trainers like clicker trainers showed a um, significant probability of being able to accurately identify what those horses were communicating like more so than than the average so I think that that is really interesting as well obviously you don't have to be a clicker trainer to be able to identify what a horse is expressing 